Hey, this is Jeremy Jung. In this episode of Software Sessions, I'm talking to Kyle Drake, the creator of NeoCities, about the challenges of building a content delivery network and being an independent hosting provider for personal sites all around the world. But before we discuss NeoCities, we have a conversation about GeoCities, its spiritual predecessor. And if you aren't familiar with GeoCities, it really defined the web in the 90s. We talk about what made that era different, why it ultimately faded away, and how Kyle's trying to bring the spirit of those times back to the web. We also go into Kyle's efforts to create a museum-like environment to explore web pages from the 90s. It was a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. So to start, for those who aren't familiar with GeoCities, what was it? GeoCities was a web hosting service that was kind of started in the early 90s by Dave Bonet, who was down in, I think they live there in Beverly Hills, California. And I think it started as some kind of internet service provider or something like that. And they had user accounts on that site. And then they sort of decided to just make it a more open thing where like anyone could create a personal homepage. And people started creating HTML and sort of their little portals on the web to express themselves. And you know, that was that was how back in the day, you know, you kind of uh, express yourself online, like you, you didn't create a Twitter account or Facebook account or whatever, you would make your own web page. And so yeah, that, that's sort of how GSA started. And then just more and more people started making websites there. And it quickly became I think at peak, it was like the second most uh, trafficked site on the internet. And this was kind of in like the mid to late 90s. And then in uh, at sort of at the top of the dot com uh, bubble, they sold it to Yahoo for like a billion dollars or something like that and became part of the sort of Yahoo franchise, which was gutted by corporate raiders and uh, no longer exists. And most people I've talked to that know what GeoCities is had a page on GeoCities. They either don't know what it is because at this point, there's just people that are young enough that they've never seen it before in their like sort of usage of the internet or it's people that are like, Oh, Hey, uh, did you find my site? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just like, they just think that I, out of the 8 million sites or whatever that are in the collection that, Oh, oh yeah, I found your site. I know exactly. I, I know all your secrets. Yeah. About final fantasy seven cheat nice. codes. Yeah. Whatever, yeah. You know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Th that was sort of the original social component of the web was GeoCities. The social component of the web before that, like back in its sort of research days, was, you know, like college universities, you know, like the only people that could actually afford to connect to the internet were college universities, basically. And, you know, it'd be like Usenet groups or mailing lists where they talk about like Star Trek or something like that, you know, just super nerdy stuff, because you had to be like a super nerd to be able to use the internet back then. And um, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, they sort of started interconnecting it with the context of commercializing it and being like, hey, you know, let's make this more of like a thing where anyone can access this and use it. And so you're saying like it was really this this community or this site where people could go and build their own web page, kind of express themselves. And was that just with static HTML and CSS? Yeah, people basically would just take out a text editor and just write HTML to create these sort of basic web pages, these sort of documents that would then... Uh, have, you know, images and stuff and then link to other documents. And yeah, people weren't learning PHP or Perl or C or any of the stuff. They were just sort of making these sort of markup documents. There, I mean, there certainly were like 
you know, like HTML editors and stuff too, that like made it so people could just like, you know, use a graphical interface to sort of drop stuff into a web page or whatever. But at the time, uh, HTML was just sort of simple enough that you could just do it from scratch. I mean, you still can, but you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated now than it used to be. So it was just very simple sort of, you know, text-based documents with some images attached to that. And that was it. That was the original like way that you expressed yourself. And, you know, it required a little bit of technical prowess. It had a sort of a monetary hurdle because you had to be able to buy a computer and connect it to the internet, which, you know, was a much more expensive thing to do back then than it is now. You, you know, there was like a certain sort of technical component to it, even for sites that like didn't look very good or whatever. Like they were generally pretty savvy people building these things. And I guess now the bar's just been lowered uh, so that anyone can participate, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, people that are like more thoughtful tend to be better contributors. Mm -hmm. I guess is what I'll say about that. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at it from a technical perspective, I mean, now we sort of have the same technology that we had back then in terms of HTML, CSS, JavaScript, the ability to upload our page to a site. And in some ways, like you were saying, it's actually gotten easier, right? Because you don't you don't need as much expertise. But sorry, you're going to. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, actually, CSS wasn't around oh, time okay. for most of this, these sites. Um, well, OK, so it did exist. But the problem was that there was three different browsers and they had a completely different interpretation of what CSS mm. was. You know, this was way before everybody got things standardized uh, so that a website worked in the same browsers. I think I think Netscape 4 and like Internet Explorer 5 had CSS support mm. even. But I actually tried to use it recently because I was working on a gallery of GeoCity sites and I was trying to figure out if I could use CSS for a modern sort of table style display of like pages. But you'd use it, it would work in Netscape 4, and then it would do something completely different in Internet Explorer right. 5. And so, like, this was the problem with CSS back then. So no one used mm. it for anything because it was just not standardized mm -hmm. at all. So you couldn't get it to work. So, yeah. So I guess I had kind of forgotten about that, how we have different browsers now. But back then, they were, like, really, really different, like, in terms of rendering. Yeah, they were different beasts, and they had different agendas. When Microsoft came into the space with Internet Explorer, their objective was to create their own standard or their own interpretation of the standards so that developers would have to buy their development software because, you know, it wouldn't work on anything else. This was their strategy for monopolizing the web uh, is basically just making it non-standard enough that you had to use their software instead of the stuff that everyone else was using. Uh, so it was like an intentional strategy even to do that. I mean, I think they did it on purpose. Mm. And... So what do you think makes the current internet different? Because people are still able to make the same kind of sites that they made back then. You know, what's stopping people from doing that now? I think what the what the modern web has revealed is that when you make something simpler to use, people don't really care about the autonomy of homesteading. You know, like the, the sort of independence of homesteading, they just don't really care that much about it because fundamentally what they were just trying to do most of them was just like post pictures of you know their kids eating ice cream and mm -hmm. stuff and you know that's that's you know just sort of share with like a small group of their friends or in, in twitter's context sort of blast out you know globally to like people that are your sort of your followers or whatever a lot of the reason why the original web kind of failed to a certain extent uh, in terms of like, you know, why doesn't anyone, everyone just use, make a sort of a website now instead of using Facebook and Twitter? 
Well, I mean, people do, but it tends to be more of like a, a resume kind of thing or more like a here's my like page on the web that links to these other sort of social media things. One of the really big flaws with the original web was that, you know, it was pretty hard to sort of cross communicate with people that were following you and interested in what you were doing. Uh, we kind of had RSS available, but RSS was sort of a push only. Like you couldn't actually like get any feedback from like your followers or anything. I guess I could send you emails, but it wasn't the sort of like public square of discourse the same way something like Twitter is. And if you're a journalist and you're trying to do a bunch of like research and stuff and trying to communicate with people, uh, it's more useful for them to sort of have something like Twitter where it's more, you know, interconnected in terms of like, you know, you, you post stuff, people immediately can see that stuff and they can reply to it and sort of comment on it and add more information. That sort of was lacking in the original web because back then it was like you'd make a web page, but you didn't really know who was actually going to your web page. It was very sort of invisible, right? You know, there was hit counters, right? Remember the hit mm -hmm. counters? Yeah. Some sometimes the hit counters they're all they're all broken now because they were all like CGI bin C programs. Like people would embed into their page, and so like they don't work. All of them mm -hmm. are dead. But then the ones that aren't dead are the ones where it's it, it's like a fake hit counter it's like you look at it and it shows like oh this site's got eight million views and it like shows the view counter slowly turning oh, numbers yeah, or whatever slowly going up or there's the ones where it's just it's just a joke and it's just like constantly like rolling all the numbers mm. as if like you're getting like trillions of hits mm -hmm. or whatever but yeah like you, you never really had a perspective on like what sites were popular and what sites weren't one of the unfortunate things about the original GeoCities pages is because all of the hit trackers are gone and deleted, uh, we, we have no information on like which sites were more popular than other sites. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even that basic metric of just how many people are going to a site uh, is no, no longer available, unfortunately. So you kind of just have to guess whether a site was popular or not. But yeah, most of these sites, you'd make an update to them. You'd get maybe 200 people would ever go to the site you know, or less than a thousand and you'd make little updates here and there, but you know, without that sort of feedback mechanism of like more people coming to the site and getting more feedback and stuff, it wasn't something that was like a big motivator for people as like a long-term project because it just, it, it wasn't really giving you sort of that feedback required to actually, you know, update your site and be like, oh yeah, people like this and they think it's interesting. I've tried to resolve a lot of those problems with NeoCities actually. We do have sort of a, a social network of sorts for people that make websites. So, um, you know, that was like the big redesign we did for NeoCities after we, when we first launched NeoCities, it was, was just basically like a hosting service with not a lot of other stuff. And, and then we added sort of a social networking component to that where it was sort of like, you can make page updates and then like have comments with people about stuff on the page. And we ended up implementing that on the NeoCity side of things and not in a way that they could embed on their websites. And the reason I did that was because of the hit counters breaking, right? Like if I allowed people to embed stuff that is like custom to NeoCities onto their own sites, and then like NeoCities went away for some reason or broke or something happened, uh, then all of that functionality would break. And so my philosophy has always been to not provide anything for static websites that could break in the future, because then it makes it so the sites don't work anymore because of my fault. So I've tried to avoid that in general. But people, when they use NeoCities, can tell if people like their sites or not. 
you know, and I've actually been working on some stuff to improve that and be like, hey, you know, you're like the fifth most popular site on NeoCities. People like your site or something like that. You know, I've been kind of working on ways to sort of provide that feedback so that people do understand if their site's popular or not. But it's a harder thing to do than it is on something like Twitter. You know? Yeah, I mean, that's that's actually a really interesting point in that. You know, my understanding is that kind of in the past when people were building their own personal sites or building, you know, sites on GeoCities, a lot of times they would kind of put this work in and they would build a page and it might be really cool, um, but you didn't really have a good idea of who was coming and who was interested. And so I feel like there was a tendency to, you know, you build the site and then it just kind of stagnates. And it's like this really cool capsule of what this person was thinking at the time um, but they tended not to continue to update it. And I think you made a good point about not having that sort of feedback cycle that you get when you post on, say, Twitter or on Instagram or whatever, where you can immediately see like, hey, people are interested in my stuff, so I should keep making new stuff. Yeah, you'd have guest books or whatever, but then like you'd get like maybe one one update a month in the guest book or something like that. Right. You know? uh, but yeah, that feedback mechanism is really important. I mean, there's ways to do it without things like Twitter. You know, there's been some work on potentially creating uh, sort of decentralized social networks and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it's it's hard to make stuff like that because, you know, if you make mistakes, they're permanent a lot of the right. time. It's hard to, like, adjust a decentralized network so, so that it works well without sort of a central entity able to sort of deal with problems like spam and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, still, you know I've worked in the space for years and I, I'm still... Not convinced whether it's a it's going to work or it's a pipe dream, mm-hmm. yeah, because because there's just the, the the technical hurdles are so overwhelming. But you know, at the same time, um, and this is sort of a weird tangent, but um, I work in emerging technology a lot, and I'm extremely skeptical of most of it to the point where like most people are always like, "Why do you work in distributed web and decentralized stuff if you don't think it's going to work? And why would you do that?" And I was just like, "Well, you don't know; it's new." Right. Like it's a new technology. And there's this sort of thing about the nature of emerging tech right now that I really hate, which is that you have to be a true believer to get into something. If you think Bitcoin's interesting technology, right, you have to be the Bitcoin pumper. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, oh, everyone should, everything, Bitcoin's going to be used by everything. Everybody's going to use Bitcoin. It's going to be perfect. It's going to get rid of all of the evils of capitalism. You know, it's just, and if you disagree, you're a heretic, you're crazy. And it's just, I hate that mentality. Like I love when people are in emerging tech and they're extremely skeptical of emerging tech. And so I love distributed web. I think it's a great idea. I'm friends with all of the people that do distributed web stuff. But at the same time, I'm also skeptical of like whether it's going to work or not because it's hard. It's it's a hard problem to solve. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a, a very hard problem with a lot of unknowns because with a centralized system, whether that's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, like you have... Um, you know, you have a private company with a lot of resources and a centralized location, and they they have so much staff to deal with content moderation and things like that. And as soon as you kind of break that into, you know, this sort of magical decentralized world, there's like so many questions that, that need to be answered. I, I think it makes sense to, to be skeptical. And, you know, who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah. The context of NeoCities for me uh, and like why I created it was really because we're switching to this online world of everyone is, you know, signs up for Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And what do they give you? They give you a little text box you can update. They give you uh, Facebook, you can upload a photo or a video or a little text box. And 
it's kind of like if you didn't own land and all of a sudden I was like, hey, there's some land over here. There's like 100 acres and you can do whatever you want with that land. You can, you know, put a house on it. You can like, you know, turn it into a crazy hot springs. You can do anything you want with this land. You bulldoze it into a terrible parking lot. You know, it's just, you can do anything. And they would have like tons of space and freedom to sort of like figure out how, how to express themselves and in what way to express themselves, what information to provide as sort of like a completely open choice to them, you know, more of like an, a blank canvas, like a, you paint what you want uh, versus, you know, the newer social networks, which is sort of like Twitter, you know, where you sign up for it. And it's like, instead of massive megabytes and megabytes of like space to do whatever you want, it's like tiny little text box. And being, instead of getting like a hundred acres of land, it's like you, you get like a, uh, it's like a Stasi apartment, you know, like a tiny little like Soviet Union apartment block. It's like made out of just like sad concrete. You have, you're in this room that's like 100 square feet or something. And it's just like super like efficiently designed and like just sort of sad looking. And, and it's just that that's the big trade off for me. That's, that's such a problem with the new social networks is just that they completely constrain your ability to be creative on these platforms because you know, they don't want you to be creative. They want you to sort of use them exactly as they intend them to be used. And so that, I guess, is the thing that I really miss about the old web and why I don't like the new web as much. It's just that, like, we've sort of traded off this sort of creative ability, uh, this sort of space for these sort of like tiny little blocks within this like su super centralized government-like entity that has these weird algorithms that sort of decide what you should be and what you shouldn't be looking at. Back in the 90s, when we used the web, it was a choice and it's no longer a choice. And I guess the big reason why I created NeoCities was to sort of give people that ability to sort of have land to be creative again, because virtual land is cheap. It's it's like almost free. Uh, and so it's e it's very easy to give it out to people. Uh, the only consequence is that, you know, with that freedom comes responsibility. You, if, you know, if you get like real land in the real world, you have to do things like, you know, figure out how to hook it up to the electrical grid, you know, like uh, put in a, a well so you can like have access to clean drinking water. So it's a little more work, but then like, I don't know, you get more control and then you can make really cool stuff with it. And, and that's that's sort of my philosophy for like bringing back the sort of 90s web. It's not the dancing baby gifs and like the Limp Bizkit MIDI files and stuff. It, it's it's the creativity component that like I'm trying to bring back, if that makes sense. That's that's really great. And I, I think there is room for both, though, I think. Right. Like, you know, there are people who they just want to post a picture of, you know, something funny they saw today or you know, they want to make a, a comment that fits in a tweet and they don't necessarily want to um, spend the time to to build their own page. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I my proposition, I mean, maybe maybe it was different back then. But my proposition has never been to just like get rid of Twitter or Facebook or whatever. It's more just to like remind people that sort of that creativity still matters. Making web pages still matters and people still use the web. I think Facebook and Twitter still are a relevant thing. I don't think that NeoCities is proposing to get rid of them. I think it's just providing space for people that want to be creative and still make web pages. And web pages still do matter. The web is not going away. You know, one of the big reasons why is because Google is still incentivized to make web pages like the thing that most people get their information from. Uh, because if it goes away, uh, then it will just evolve into people using apps for everything. Uh, and Google doesn't make any money that way. And so they obviously don't want that outcome. And so they're going to sort of 
work on making sure that their monopoly, like, I guess, supports the web. So, you know, interesting bedfellows sometimes when it comes to the web. You know, I, I mean, people generally like to think of Google as like very dangerous to, for the web. And there's certainly things they do that are not great for like the health of the web. But, you know, I think the biggest problem that companies like Google have is that they don't treat the people that produce that content very well. I think Google should do a better job of like recognizing that, oh yeah, this is like, these are like our people. We wouldn't exist without them. And we should probably like, you know, be more communicative with them, bring them more into the process and like take their feedback and maybe even have like representatives that like these sites can email if they need to talk to us about something. I don't think they have that that mindset yet. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of problems we have where like we can't get things done because Google decided, you know, oh, we're just going to arbitrarily change something and we're not going to have any feedback. You know, you can't talk to us about it or anything. And it's, it's been a big problem from actually me at NeoCities. Uh, I have a lot of problems uh, with Google specifically where like I can't even like find a person to email uh, except for like friends that I know that work at the company, which, you know, is right. kind of weird. I, I don't like doing that, you know, but I, I, I'd love it if they had like an account representative. So I could just le at least email somebody over there and be like, Hey, this is like really bad for websites. You need to stop doing this or something. Yeah. What's an example of that? Are you, are you talking about specifically about issues where, um, you don't end up in Google search index when somebody's searching for a site or kind of what's an example of a problem? Well, so one of the big problems with providing a web hosting service with, with NeoCities, you can't actually like store data as in like dynamically. There's no back end on NeoCities. There never will be if I have any control over it. Uh, you know, there's no PHP or Node.js or any of that stuff on the back end. And this is certainly one of the things that separates us from a lot of the other sort of hosting services, uh, like free websites for creatives or just like generic web hosting in general is that all of them have sort of taken that steering of like, oh yeah, you can, we have a backend that runs Node.js and now you can use Node.js on your app. That's all fun and everything and certainly more powerful, but with that power comes deep, deep problems because people can do things on the backend, like they can start doing things like, you know, like sending arbitrary network requests to like random computers. They can do DDoS attacks. They can, you know, punch into your infrastructure by like figuring out how to like get through the Node.js stuff or whatever. You know, there's just all these sort of problems with like running backend stuff. People can, you know, tie up your resources by like making something that just like endlessly loops and like computes, you know, cr crunches data or something. It just creates all these problems. But despite the fact that no one can really do like storage of information with NeoCities, we still get people that will use us as sort of the front store for like phishing sites and stuff like it, it'll be like a, a login form and then you type in your username and password and that that form goes to some other hosting service that like does let you store data but then we are the ones that get flagged as like a phishing site uh, despite the fact that it's not even like you can't store that data on our our end it's on a back-end thing but their so sort of detection scripts are, are too stupid to realize that. And so they sort of assume that it's being stored on my stuff. My stuff is the phishing page. And so I ban those sites, but then the back end, the other portal remains up and they can just like point it to another site and continue to receive information or whatever. 
And so like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a great example of like a, you know, hey, Google, like it doesn't matter who's providing the front page. It matters where the data is being sent. The other problem with that, too, is that when it gets reported to me, I have to go through this manual process to click buttons on their web page to tell them that I've dealt with it. Uh, and, you know, there's no API. And so it's just like, well, if you made an API, then I can imp- integrate it into my system and, re- and indicate to you that I've banned it as like a dynamic process as part of banning it uh, instead of having to do this manual thing every time. It's just like these little th- it's little stuff like that, but it all adds yeah. up and makes like also, you know, they always claim, oh, page rank doesn't matter anymore. We don't do page rank anymore for indexing stuff. But you know what? I get a ton of page rank spam. So I guess someone didn't get the memo that they don't do page rank anymore. But uh, again, it's like, you know, if I could report page rank spam to Google, then they would stop doing it because they would know that if they posted it to NeoCities, then uh, it would get flagged as page rank spam within Google and then would no longer be an incentive to do that. If Google provided the interfaces to actually do this stuff correctly, like we could eliminate phishing and spam from most web hosting services. Like we could like almost get rid of phishing attacks completely. Like, Mm. but they, but they just won't give me the tooling to be able to do it. And I, there's no one to contact. And when you try to talk to anyone that knows, they're just like, oh, it's a secret department. We can't talk about it. And, you know, can't, you know, you can't, can't know anything. When you mentioned page rank spam, is, is that people creating sites on NeoCities and linking back to some other site they want to drive people to? Or or what is that exactly? Yeah, it tends to be these like really basic looking. Pa- I can visually identify them almost immediately. Which, by the way, hint hint, you know, I might be doing some machine learning stuff on, related to this in the in the near future because you can classify spam and phishing attacks compared to the sites that aren't spam and phishing attacks. And I've actually done some testing on this already with just image classifiers, not like text classifiers, but image classifiers, and they are almost one hundred percent accurate. Uh, without me doing any tuning or tweaking of any kind, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, that's coming later. I, that's a that's an ongoing project. But uh, it's funny, actually. It's a lot of like links to like weird factories in China that make like really, really specialized components. So like, hmm. you know, I think one of them was like an ad for like a menthol. That's it, menthol. Mm. It was like a menthol factory. They just make like big hunks of menthol crystals and then like sell them to like cough drop companies or something like that. And uh huh. and, and it's just an ad for that. You just see these spam sites and you just sort of, I just sort of ban them, but yeah, it's always just like a bad description of the company and then like a link to like their actual domain name of that company or whatever. Um and so the spam has been annoying. It's just kind of something I don't would rather not do. Uh, but the really existential problem at NeoCities has always been phishing sites. Um, phishing sites are really, really, really bad. They're not treated well by hosting providers. One of the biggest problems we had at NeoCities early on was if we got any phishing sites on NeoCities, they would assume that we were running a hacked WordPress blog and they would just turn off the server. And so like, yeah, one of the first things, one of the first things I recognized really early on was, oh yeah, this is like, you know, the actual front store, the thing that like serves NeoCities and the, and the, this, the, and the servers that actually store that data should be very different providers. And so actually uh, I haven't done like a write-up of the infrastructure of NeoCities ever. So I guess this is like the first time I'm describing it publicly, but 
the servers that run the sort of web application and the like site storage and like the database and all of that sort of core infrastructure stuff, that is all on a completely different provider than the CDN that actually sends web data to the end users. They're at different companies. And, and the reason the reason for this is because if I ever get into some weird hot water with the service provider related to some data that was being served, and they decide to just like ban us, you know, just be like, oh, you can't be our customers anymore. And we'll take out our CDN, but it won't take out the core infrastructure. And we have backups for the CDN. So we can actually move to like other providers in the event that like this happens. Uh, but this has been the big problem with uh, web hosting as like a small entity is that when you get things like phishing attacks or you get reports of it, these providers, they just sort of assume like, oh, you're running a, you know, you've got like a WordPress blog because I'm just using these like low end VPSs, you know, these like cheap mm-hmm. sort of like virtual servers to do the CDN stuff. And, and the reason why is because, you know, if we were to like do like dedicated servers with like our own like data center racks and stuff, it would be very expensive and we wouldn't be able to, um, we, we wouldn't be able to last long, you know, like spending that much money on infrastructure. Right. Uh, you know, Neostase doesn't make a lot of money and you got to be careful about how we spend it, uh, which I guess is what, one of the things that separates us from these like monster VC companies that just have like um, hundreds of millions of dollars and they can just spend tons and tons of money and just throw it away and just, you know, not think about like the costs of these things at all. Um, versus Neocities, which is sort of this small, slowly growing sustainable entity that has to kind of live within its means. And the problem with living within your means is that you're also kind of a shitty customer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so these people, like, you know, like our first VPN was run, just a bunch of DigitalOcean servers, right? And again, mm-hmm. they just, they would get an abuse report. And the, and the way abuse reports get reported is to the IP address, not to my nice contact email that I provide for reporting uh, it. Yeah. They just sort of send it to whoever, whatever ISP controls the IP address. And then you're sort of expected, they're sort of expected to deal with the problem. And so DigitalOcean gets a report and they just shut down your servers. And, and so, yeah, one of our first major site outages uh, that we had when we started NeoCities was just that there was like, it, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even a phishing attack. I think it was like a DMCA takedown request for like a copyrighted image. And I'm pretty sure it was the NRA actually that wow. sent the sent the takedown the national rifle association like it was someone i don't remember if it was someone like being critical of the nra or something but mm-hmm. they sent a dmca takedown to DigitalOcean, and DigitalOcean was like oh yeah no and and they just shut all of our we had like state servers and they shut wow. all of them down mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not just the one that like they got the report on they shut all of the servers down and they said right. we are blocking this until you remove this and I, if i remember correctly it wasn't even a valid dmca takedown it was like about an image that like wasn't theirs or something it was like mm-hmm. it was not there's something i'm not right about the dmca take but yeah for one dmca complaint they shut the entire thing down and That's crazy yeah DigitalOcean was is yeah they're bad at that too like i've heard a lot of other stories from people where like it's it's like that where it's like a simple dmca complaint or like a phishing attack or whatever happens and they just shut the whole thing down and so that has been a really existential problem for dealing with the technical complexity of with neocities so the way i solved that problem and it was insane and it took a year and 
I still can't believe it worked, <laughs> is I figured out how to actually use my own IP addresses to run our CDN. You, you can get IP addresses. Uh, they're kind of expensive now because they ran out of IPv4 addresses. You have to buy them from private providers. And I think it was like $4,000 to buy the IPv4 address block that we're using, it, which, which at the time I'm pretty sure was worth more than my car. but then the other thing is then you have to find providers that are okay with you routing your own uh, ip address block because most of them don't right like amazon Mm -hmm. doesn't let you do it you know none of these other providers let you do it we can't use amazon anyway because they charge like 30 times more for bandwidth than it like the market rate is it's just like Mm. like our bandwidth costs would be more than we make if we like used amazon for anything which is why we never use that stuff because it's just the 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 transit's too expensive but yeah we we did finally find a provider that let us use a vulture specifically that let us use uh our bring our own ip addresses uh with vpns or i'm sorry vpss uh, virtual private servers little rental cheap sort of servers uh and the other thing that happens, the, the other problem with running your IP addresses, though, is that you have to know how to use BGP or Border Gateway Protocol, which is the sort of actual thing that makes the Internet work. I mean, I think people think like, oh, TCP IP, that's 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 the Internet. Uh, I would actually say that BGP is like a more important protocol for like how the web actually works and how data actually gets moved around. Um, TCP is more of just like this abstraction layer for BGP. Uh I, I mean, that's probably not technically correct, but, you know, it's just sort of the way I think about it. And BGP is really strange because, you know, when I first turned on BGP, I had like 10 servers all over the world and I wanted to like the data to route to like the nearest servers or like requests rather to route to the nearest servers. And what would happen is that I launched 10 servers and all of the traffic in the United States which would go to New York. And it was just mm. like, why is it all going to New York? It's like, going out of its way to go to New York. And the reason why is because they have some like peering agreement with Comcast in New York. And so Comcast looks at that traffic, that BGP interconnection stuff. And it's just like, oh, we have a, we have a transit deal with them in New York. So just route it all there. Uh, So you have to do these things called BGP communities, which is sort of this way of like moving the trap, like telling the traffic, don't do that. Don't go through exchanges, Uh, only go through like a few of these like, pure tier one providers that like actually have like connections in all of the cities and stuff. And there's, and, and there's no books on how this, on, on, on how to do this stuff. There's no guides on how to do like, it's called an anycast network an anycast CDN. You know, the only information you ever get when you Google like, you know, BGP anycast is basically you get like promotional blog posts from Cloudflare uh, saying that they have the best one and that it's mm-hmm. complicated. No one else can ever do it as well as we do it and blah 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 um and so the, the last bgp book that was written like on just the topic of bgp itself uh predates 9-11 i think it was like in published in like 1999 or something like that and it doesn't discuss any cast cdns at all because this is just not what people used bgp for back then uh and so yeah i had to learn all of this from scratch and it was very difficult so BGP is is that kind of is that related to DNS? Is that how when I try I go to neocities.org, um, how it determines which server is going to handle my request, or what is BGP exactly? Uh, BGP is it, it's hard to describe uh, BGP, and I still you know after using it for years, still don't really understand sort of the premise of it and how it. Well, I just don't understand how it works. 
uh, mm-hmm. completely. But it basically it's like you get IP addresses and you assign them to like a BGP server. You say the BGP server just sort of announces to other BGP servers that, hey, I have these IP addresses and I, you can route your traffic. for. If you're looking for these IP addresses, you can send the data here. And the only way that the network knows to trust you is just through that. Just trust. It's, it's a completely trust-driven system. And so like when I have an IP address block, uh, a, a bunch of IP addresses and I want to route them, like make it so you can mm-hmm. route to them over the internet. Uh, I have to whitelist them with my upstream provider. Uh, there's an organization that like manages the IP addresses and they check to make sure that I actually own the IP addresses. And they're like, okay, yeah, you can route these. That's cool. And uh, and so then they whitelist it. And then my servers announce to their servers and then their servers announce to like their servers and then their servers announce to their servers. And it just sort of cascades over the entire uh, system. I, I don't know how many BGP servers there are, but there's like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of BGP servers out there. And mm. basically they get updates uh, through this thing called, I think it's called a routing table, uh, which is a pretty large table these days. I think it's like over 500,000 records or something. Um, mm. It's getting bigger because people are splitting up the big IP address blocks and the smaller IP address blocks uh, because they're getting more expensive. And so like it's, you know, they're splitting them off and selling chunks of them and then making them smaller for that reason. But all of these machines get these updates and they sort of update their routing accordingly uh, by adding sort of your routing stuff to their sort of table they have inside their router. And, um, and so all of a sudden, like you announce a BGP route or whatever, and within five or six seconds, the entire internet knows exactly how to route traffic to your machines. Uh, it's pretty incredible, oh. actually, like how that it works, you know, like that within seconds, mm-hmm. like you make a change to the BGP, you know, routing and all of the routers on the internet get this information and then can then start routing traffic. It's really an incredible system. Uh and it works, you know, for the most part, it works pretty well. But every once in a while, someone hijacks a BGP block or announces mm. or, or sorry, an IP address block uh, uh, or or like, you know, starts routing tra- uh, BGP traffic that they're not supposed to be able to route. But it's a completely trust driven system. It, it's sort of like, you know, AT&T and Verizon, you know, trusting each other and saying like, oh, uh, you know, I'll accept your, your IP addresses and they better be right because if they're not like it's going to screw up a bunch of stuff. Uh, mm. but yeah. And, and in your case, it, it sounds like, so you purchase like a set of IP addresses and then um, you have to get these IP addresses added to these, uh, you were calling them like BGP communities. Is that say like a Comcast or a uh, Verizon? Like who well, is that? It, oh, so the, the, the naming is terrible for this stuff. So BGP communities aren't actually communities. They're, they're like commands. They're sort of like codes that you punch in it actually is just a number usually but basically it's just a way of sending commands to the upstream bgp servers uh so it has nothing i don't know why they're called communities i hate the, that they're called communities they're, they're commands they're bgp commands and for example one of the commands that you can uh, communities you can use is uh don't announce to uh internet exchanges so when you're doing an Anycast CDN with BGP, one of the really important things you need to do is use providers that are more or less in all of the data centers that you have nodes in. They're called POPs, points of presence. And so you want a transit provider in all of those data centers 
that is like the same one. So for example, uh, our two big providers are uh, NTT, uh, which is uh, Nippon Telephone and Telegraph. They're actually one of the bigger transit providers in the world. Uh, and as a backup, I, I use, uh, I think it's it's some German, GTT is what they're called. <laughs> they, they're, they all, like, okay. it's a, yeah, it's a GTT. So it's just like, you know, but it's like Deutsch Telekom or something. Uh, I, I don't like using them as much because their routing is much less clean than NTT's. Uh, NTT does a better job of routing stuff to the correct location. Uh, But NTT also does a great job of like occasionally fighting with like certain transit providers, uh, like this one in India in particular that I don't remember the name of. Uh, There can be a situation where if you only have NTT as your provider, uh, your site will be inaccessible to certain parts of the internet that are like related to like an Indian telecom or something like that. Um, mm. And so you have to have at least two providers. So I, I, I tell my upstream provider, don't announce to internet exchanges because internet exchanges means things like the um, peering with Comcast that makes it so all the Comcast traffic goes to New York, right? So like, oh, I don't okay. want that. So I'm like, don't do that. Don't don't ask to those exchanges. Usually if you're just doing unicast and you don't care, uh, you want those exchanges because they're cheaper. Like it's presumably cheaper to connect to a provider for free uh, than to go through like NTT or whatever, because they sort of charge for bandwidth. Yeah, usually you want that. But in this case, we don't want that because we're, we're trying to even out the traffic. Um, the other thing... Uh, is I say, like, don't announce to any providers at all except for NTT and GTT. So whichever, like, random, like, transit providers are there that aren't in all the data centers, uh, those don't get the memo that the data is, like, routable through them. And then the other thing I do is I do this thing called uh, a prepend, AS prepend to uh, GTT. So the way that BGP does routing is if there's these identifiers for networks called ASNs, or uh, I think they're called like autonomous system numbers. And so Mm -hmm. like Comcast has an ASN, like NeoCities has an ASN because we do BGP and have IP addresses. If you do any IP address routing, you have to have an ASN. NTT has an ASN, et cetera, et cetera. And they have one ASN for the whole organization, usually. The way BGP does traffic routing in terms of like figuring out which provider to send the traffic to, because like you can get announces from multiple providers. In my case, networks get announces from NTT and GTT, and it has to decide which of those two it wants to like route with, right? Because that's a choice. Mm-hmm. And that choice, a lot of times is a business choice. They'll be like, oh, route through uh, GTT because it's cheaper than NTT and we don't want to pay as much for NTT or whatever. But what I can do is I can I can sometimes have control over that and be like, I want you to route through NTT instead. But the only way that I can really do that is uh, we're, we're just adding more ASNs to the routing for GTT. So what I do is I just sort of add my own ASN three more times uh, to their announcement of the route. And then it looks like a longer route because there's more ASNs attached to it. Hmm. And then BGP just says, oh, well, the NTT one is uh, less ASNs, which in my thought process means that it's closer. So I'm going to route through this instead. It's not a guarantee that it's going to work that way, but that's like what you're supposed to do to like make it so that it prefers certain kinds of routing. Uh, but, you know, it's it's all dependent on what the routers want to do. And there's this whole like... Uh, drop list uh all this stuff is cisco routers by the way like 90 percent of the stuff is cisco and so this Mm -hmm. is like guide from cisco on how bgp routers decide 
the optimal routes and it's kind of the standard for like how to figure out like where your traffic's going to actually go. Uh, there's like a whole like drop list of like, you know, step one, it does this step two, it checks for this step three, it checks for this. Um, it's very complicated and weird. I, I really should just make a guide on how to do BGP Anycast stuff, but I, I don't know. I just haven't done it yet. I mean, a lot of the reason is that I don't want people to get into doing BGP stuff just because it's, they think it's a cool technical problem to solve because it's, you shouldn't use it unless you have to. So the reason why I did all the BGP stuff is because when we route our IP addresses, it wasn't about saving money on transit, which it kind of does. It, it wasn't about making it so that like providing custom domain support is easier because it, it does do that because we can just have domains switch to a single IP address that we control. Uh, and so, you know, that's a lot easier then because I don't have to tell everyone with a domain on Neocities to switch their IP addresses anymore. So that's that was mm -hmm. nice. And it's not really about making my own Anycast network, uh, you know, which has kind of been an interesting thing to work on, but not not something I would do by default that I would like be interested in doing. The reason why we did it fundamentally is so that when we get a few phishing complaints or if we get DMCA complaints or if we get malware complaints, or if we get any kind of complaints, they get sent to my email because I control the IP address. Ah, uh, okay. And so when I control the email IP address, then the complaints go to me and not to a internet provider that I'm not paying enough to not shut down all of our stuff. That's the reason why we built Anycast CD. And it had nothing to do with like performance. It had nothing to do with like even the domain stuff. It was just to make it so that we can safely host millions of sites without getting shut down instantly every time that some dumb complaint comes in about some piece of content that we're like helping to provide. That's the only mm -hmm. reason why we did it. I would have never done it if that was not the case. But yeah, if you yeah. are doing real infrastructure shit and you're hosting like millions of sites for people or doing any kind of stuff with like a lot of third party content, uh, that's kind of the point when you really do have to start running your own IP addresses and infrastructure uh, because otherwise people don't treat you like an internet service provider. They treat you like a, a again, like a WordPress blog, you know? And mm -hmm. if you look at all the big companies out there, uh, most of them do run their own infrastructure and have their own IP addresses and stuff, you know, like GitHub does, uh, Uber does, you know, like all these sort of major sites, they, they do ultimately do actually run, run their own IP addresses at the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you were somebody who, let's say you were hosting your infrastructure on AWS or DigitalOcean, if you got like a takedown notice, that would go to Amazon or that would go to DigitalOcean. It wouldn't come to you. So you would have no control over how to deal with it. Right. And they have their own policies as to like whether, you know, they're going to allow that content or not. And, you know, their policies trump yours because it's their infrastructure. And so, yeah, if they get a, a, a sort of a DMCA takedown, and let's say it's not even a valid DMCA takedown, let's say that it's like, you know, it's not formed correctly or it's illegitimate, uh, they send a complaint, you send a complaint to Amazon and they're like, oh, if you don't take this down, we'll take your, your sites down. And um, mm -hmm. that's a weird system because, you know, it also doesn't allow you to push back on it, right? Like you can't mm -hmm. be like, uh, I disagree with you. This is not a valid DMCA takedown. We're not going to enforce this, you know, like this, or, or it's like, you know, you're just trying to silence someone that's critical of your business. And we're not going to do that. We've had that before where people come in and they're like, mm -hmm. they file complaints that are just like DMCA takedowns or like, you know, 
the slander, you know, the, one of the, the recent one is that someone's like, there's some like Italian car parts company or something. And someone had like a bad experience with them or they got ripped off or something. And they made a web page mm-hmm. on Neocities that was like, Hey, these guys like rip people off and they're scammy. And this company has been like, losing their minds. They keep sending me emails. They're like, you got to take this down immediately. The Italian police told me to email you and stuff. And it's just like the Italian police are, I'm just like, well, that's not, well, first of all, we're not an Italian company, so that doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, secondly, uh, this isn't a legal request. But again, it's just when you don't have control over that, it, it goes to the DigitalOcean or Vue staff or whatever. And then they're just sort of like it, whatever they decide ends up being like what you have to do because it's, it's yeah. otherwise you're going to shut all of your shit down. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was a really bad position to be in. You know, I like to be able to like actually control that stuff. Um Mm-hmm. legally uh you're in the clear for hosting almost anything i mean it, it, when you host content the way the law works is that i'm not liable for third-party content so if someone posts something that even if it's illegal uh, i'm not liable for that content necessarily uh, the person that posted that content holds the liability so like if someone writes hmm. a complaint about a company or whatever or you know is critical of somebody or, you know, even if it's like a death threat against somebody or something, I'm not liable for that. I'm not, I, I'm not the one that goes to jail for that. Verizon executives don't go to jail if someone uses the Verizon cell phone to help commit a robbery or something, right? Mm-hmm, like, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of that ar- argument. And uh, actually, it's been some talk recently of revisiting that law and removing some of that, like, liability protection, uh, which mm. I'm very concerned about because yeah. uh, you know if they make it li- legally liable for the, the providers to host content that's that's a real big problem for companies like neocities because we don't really have the resources to sort of pre-screen all of that content and make these sort of arbitrary decisions based on the legal side of it mm-hmm. and i do have some concern about that that proposal, I think people are kind of like, oh, yeah, let's let's stop Yahoo from like, you know, being a platform for hate or whatever. And yeah, I feel you on that. But, you know, you have to understand that, like, you know, these kind of laws benefit companies like YouTube or Google because they, they have the means to deal with them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know, like uh, it, right, it would be right. very devastating to the future of NeoCities if we we could be like arrested for stuff that other people post to NeoCities, you know, like that would be bad. Yeah, you know, that would yeah. be the kind of thing that would make me think about not running NeoCities anymore, you know. Right. I, I do want to go back to, you know, you, you were talking about how you got your own IP addresses and you were hosted on Volter, right? Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of interesting because, you know, when I I heard that you had built out your own CDN, um, I was under the assumption that like, oh, does, you know, does that mean that they're racking servers at data centers around the world? Um, no. and, uh, and it sounds like, yeah, so you can actually use a, uh, a VPS provider um, and then provide your own IPs and then make that sort of connection between your own IPs and these providers, like you were mentioning NTT and GTT. Yeah. And that way, like a takedown request, it doesn't go to Volter. It just goes straight to you. Do you want, do you want to guess how much I'm running, uh, how much it costs to run our, our Anycast CDN right now? Take a guess. Um, oh man. <laughs> how about five grand a month? No. It's uh, no? it's one hundred and thirty dollars a month. One hundred and thirty dollars. Yeah. 
for for a hundred million views a month, it's uh, about one hundred thirty dollars, and uh, we're like that, that's crazy. that's under our capacity. Like, I think we could like push twice as much transit uh, before we'd have to like wow. spend more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the the sort mm-hmm. of nature of of venture capitalism and like these startups and stuff is that they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you, you, oh, we've got a bajillion you know customers or whatever, and you know, look, we get eight trillion hits a second or whatever. Um, it it's the wizard of Oz wizard, you know, like he, he's like behind his curtain, you know, pulling the buttons and pushing things. And there's like steam coming out of it or whatever. The actual like story behind most of these startups, when they're not trying to just sort of sell numbers because they don't make any money. And so the only way they can like get more money is to sell numbers to investors. Uh, the, the sort of reality of these service providers, is pretty underwhelming. You know, it, because mm. because if you actually like do research and you like implement it correctly, you know, pushing 30 terabytes of traffic a month it only costs like a couple hundred bucks. Like it doesn't cost like mm. twenty thousand dollars or, you know, more mm-hmm. hundred thousand or whatever. Um, you know, you can certainly make it, you know, if you make the wrong choices and you go with overpriced mm-hmm. transit providers. Yeah, you can spend that much money. Um in fact, GitHub recently, I think, switched to like using Fastly as their CDN. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think Fastly, uh, it, it's a similar vibe to like Cloudflare or whatever. It's just like a, I don't know, like a CDN provider, Anycast Network or blah, blah, um, and, uh, and, you know, and, 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 you know, all tons of respect to the Fastly team and everything. Like, I actually know a lot of people that work at Fastly and like they're, they're good friends and whatever. But yeah, we, we could never use Fastly because they, they charge like, it's like nine to 20 cents per gigabyte or something like that. And I think mm-hmm. if you ran the numbers, we, we, we push about, I don't know, 20 or 30 terabytes a month on average. Yeah. That's it. Just 20, 30 terabytes. I mean, I, I, is that, I don't know if that's a big or a small number, right? It's just, it's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if I, but if I did that on Amazon or like Fastly or any of these other providers, like, I, I don't remember what the numbers are. It'd be like $5,000 a month or something for, and so $200 mm-hmm. for a transit bill. Yeah. And, and, and it's just when you, okay, when you, yeah. when you run, you know, when you run a business like that, you, you, you don't make a lot of money. That's like how you fail, you know? And yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like the, I think the actual market rate, I think, so we get, yeah. When you use a VPS with Vulture, I think they give you like, I use like the $10 a month ones for the VPSs. Like it's, it's I think it's mm-hmm. like that. I think it only has one CPU on each of the servers. And the thing is, mm-hmm. is it runs NGINX. And so NGINX is this like ultra efficient, uh, like HTTP server. And then there's like some code that I've written. Our, our NGINX file is ridiculously complex. Uh, but it, it's basically just like, you know, running the CDN for us and it uses almost no CPU. And it, you know, basically just pushes out transit push out web pages and you know it's just a big io machine input output mm-hmm. um right. and i think we get like three or four terabytes per instance or something like that they give us a certain amount of transit pre-built in to the C- a vps and so we don't pay that mm. like we just pay for the vps and then like i think any bandwidth over that that we is like uh i think it's like a cent per gigabyte compared to nine to twenty mm. cents per gigabyte it's a cent per gigabyte right. and uh, I think it's like maybe it's two cents in, in Asia or something like that. But it was just, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's so much, so much cheaper than that. If you actually rack servers into data centers and you get IP transit from like NTT directly or whatever, uh, they charge you a lot up front because it's like they don't, they don't charge you based on 
bandwidth, they just give you a hookup, like a pipe. You know, they're just like, here's a 10 gigabit connection to the internet and we'll charge you $2,000 a month for it or whatever, right? Um, mm-hmm. But if you look at the rates for that, uh, that transits like point, it's not even one cent per gigabyte. It's like 0.001% per gigabyte. It's like a 10th of a penny per gigabyte or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. That ball gets way cheaper than that even. Uh, and so, yeah. uh, like a cent per gigabyte, like that's like not even the market rate for this stuff right now. You know, like it's cheap, mm-hmm. uh, and it's one of the yeah. it's one of the brilliant brilliant business strategies of companies like Amazon with Amazon Web Services and like Google Cloud and all this other nonsense is mm-hmm. that they've somehow snookered, like f- deceived everyone in the space into thinking that. Nine to twenty cents per gigabyte is the correct price to pay for transit, and right. it's it's the it's the con of the century. It's really amazing to me, but but it's also their business strategy, right? Like their business, you know, how much does it cost to put stuff into Amazon? Zero. They charge nothing to put to move mm-hmm. it into their system, but then they make it extremely expensive to get the data out. And it's no surprise to me that the first service that Amazon Web Services provided was S3, which is just like the way to store massive amounts of data or whatever, and then make it so that all the other stuff has to be in the same data center in order to get reasonable access, speed access to that, uh, and then charge an enormous amount of money to bring it out. And I just see these companies make this mistake over and over and over again. Like we even have some, you know, just like, you know, like web hosting companies and like, you know, a lot of the VC backed ones, uh, you know, even some web hosting, I guess, sort of like, you know, creative web hosting providers, uh, like alternatives to Neocities. There are a few. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they all when I look at their network and I like, you know, trace route their servers, they're all using Amazon Web Services. and They're all using Google mm-hmm. Cloud and their mm-hmm. their bandwidth bills must be just absolutely astronomical and it just drives me crazy because it's like they're pretty much just making an unsustainable like infrastructure for when they realize the, you know, sad, but also correct truth that there's just not a lot of money in this stuff. There's been this weird thing recently where uh, there actually has been venture capitalists getting interested in sort of like Neo cities, like web hosting recently, which is really weird to me. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And they've invested in certain like static web hosting providers. Uh, I'd rather not name names, uh, but I've had a few investors come to me now and be like, Hey, do you want to take investment for Neo cities? And like, you know, in like real numbers, like millions of dollars, uh, I, I'm sure that I, I could have said yes to some of these agreements and like, you know, said he's hired like a bunch of people. And, you know. But if, you know, and I thought about it, you know, cause I, I think about any offers I get, but if you look at the offers, you know, none of them are all that great on paper. Uh, but also they sort of put your company into the sort of treadmill where it's like, if you don't create 10 X growth, um, that your company fails, right? And so when you get that money, when you raise that kind of money, you're sort of uh, putting yourself on a track, you know? And that track has to have like 10x growth. And if it doesn't have 10x growth, then you, the, you'll you just explode and like your company will fail and you'll have to like shut down all the websites and stuff, right? Or like mm-hmm. all the infrastructure. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have taken that money in the space and 
I don't know how well that's going to go for them because, uh, you know, I love providing creative web hosting for people. I love having a community of people that do awesome stuff. But I also, I also, you know, realize that, you know, I don't think that there's an Uber here. You know, I don't think that there's like this mm-hmm. massive growth startup here that's that is going to make it so that you know, you, you to justify that kind of investment. And so mm-hmm. I guess my new strategy is just sort of been to, uh, to just tell, actually just tell investors, just be like, you know, Hey, thanks for the offer. But honestly, like, I, I don't think this is a VC space and I don't think it's appropriate for this to be a VC space, but at the same time, it's that, that stuff also is kind of an existential risk to providers like Neocities because in their attempt to create like a monopoly for like web hosting or whatever with VC money, which is the only way this stuff ever works, by the way, is if you actually create a monopoly or whatever. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. they can sort of like starve out the space long enough that, you know, providers like Neocities can't can't exist. But Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about that at all, just because of like, again, so much of my time has been spent on like, how can we cut costs? How can we cut costs? How can we make this sustainable? And that's really paid off in the sense that if you look at other web hosting providers, uh, especially in like the sort of business kind of like, you know, GitHub-y kind of realm, they there's just providers that just give it out for free. So for example, like one of the sort of common web hosting solutions a lot of people have for like just business static sites is they host the page on GitHub, GitHub pages or whatever, right? And then mm-hmm. um, And then they just put Cloudflare in front of it. So, right. so they like, they like have GitHub is like sort of the, the, the web, the page provider, which is free. They just give it out for free. Uh, and then you put Cloudflare in front of it and then that's free and you've got a free website, you know, like you don't even have to spend money on it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so like, you know, there's just not a lot of actual, I guess, money in that space for a lot of that reason too. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, it's never been like a, more of like a, Neocities has never been focused on like um, the money side of this stuff. Like, oh, how can we make money doing this? It's just, it's always just been like, you know, there's there's way cheaper providers for like, you know, I mean, well, I mean, our our main web hosting is free, but then you can become a supporter and, you know, it's $5 a month and it's always been $5 a month. And there's, there's like a bajillion web hosts out there that will give you more stuff for less than that. Right. Uh, Right. And uh, like, I think, I think GoDaddy has a one where it's like, you get a PHP and a MySQL database and, you know, SSH access and it's a dollar a month or something like that. Like they don't even mm-hmm. make, like mm-hmm. if you look at credit card fees, like it's 30 cents plus 2.9%. So I think it's like, they're only getting like 60 cents of that or 50, right. you know, like half, <laughs> they're only getting like half of that, that dollar a month yeah. credit card charge. Right. So there's like, yeah. they're, they're making, they're, they're not even making money on it. They're just losing money on that. And I, I guess the reason why is because they want people to like, you know, move their, dom- buy their domains from them and, you know, like buy other stuff. That's not just the web hosting. So a lot of it's just to like, mm-hmm. they just subsidize it so that, uh, yeah. people will buy their other stuff or whatever. Right. Um, right. Right. Uh, it's a, it's a loss leader. Yeah, right? exactly. Likely. And so, yeah, like it's never been, I've never thought to myself like, Oh, I should drop, you know, our supporter plan should be $5 or a dollar a month or a year or whatever. Cause like, again, it's just, there's no reason to go down that treadmill. And, and, you know, we do have enough people that are supporters on Neocities that like, you know, sustains the existence of the site. And, 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 and I think a lot of it's just because I think, you know, it's not just a raw numbers thing to a lot of people. It is to a lot of the 
damn developers, like the people that, you know, the GitHub people or whatever, like they just, mm-hmm. it's just a big numbers game. And just like, they don't, uh, if I can be a little critical, they tend to be very entitled and very like numbers oriented and very like, mm-hmm. um, kind of expect, you know, they have a lot of expectations of getting things for free. And it's been a really big problem in the open source community in general is that you've got all these people, you know, making six figures at these like fancy internet companies. And then like all of the tooling and software that they used to make that money uh, is done by these sort of like, you know, freelance, like sort of developers and they just sort of like Mm -hmm. take the software for free and they don't pay for any of it or pay pay the developer that works on it and then when anything goes wrong they go into their github issues and they just scream at them as if like they're entitled to the software like oh how dare you you need to fix this immediately it's destroyed you know it's why aren't you fixing this what's you're bad you know it's just like it's like you're not even paying them you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just like yeah it's 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 pretty remarkable, actually, like how much, you know, in terms of the tooling and infrastructure out there is is just being built by people who they have no obligation to other people. They're they're not being paid. And yet um, that's basically what, you know, the Internet and what most of the apps we use today are built on. It's pretty, pretty amazing that it it works at all. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's just and and it's all the big tech companies want to like hyper focus on developers and like get them into their little like their squadrons, you know, like. You know, every 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 major uh, tech company has its own like you know web application framework. You know, like so Facebook has React and like um, Google has you know Vue. I don't know some other one that I don't remember. Uh, Angular. They have, uh, Angular. That's it. Angular. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, and then Microsoft comes in, and, and now they're like, oh, here Visual Studio Code. You know, like it's use use this, and and all the programmers immediately like they forget about Internet Explorer six. They forget about Microsoft's mm-hmm. like pretty awful practices uh, historically of like trying to monopolize developers and like use that to like, you know, make money. And they're just like, yeah. oh, here, look, there's a free thing. Let's use Visual Studio Code. It's like basically the same thing as mm-hmm. like text made in Atom and Sublime Text, except it's made by Microsoft. And it's, you know, and, 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 and again, this is like another one of these like things where programmers just hate me for pointing this out. But it's like, you know, Microsoft is not giving you a code editor for free. You know, because out of the goodness of their hearts, you know, like they have an agenda in mind. They go to their shareholders meetings and they talk about how they're like going to capture development markets and stuff. You know, like you're you're being led to the slaughter, you know. And, and, and so I won't use stuff like Visual Studio Code because, again, it's like I don't know what Microsoft's agenda here is, but it's not to give you a free piece of software out of the goodness of their hearts. You know, like they have an agenda here. They also acquired GitHub. You know, so, again, it's just like. That whole developer market, A, I just don't ever really feel myself ideologically close to the, that group of people. I think they're kind of like, they're just kind of cold and calculating and just like, and and, and cheap. And, and and then also like, uh, so so yeah, like I, NeoCities as a strategy is always focused on uh, people that want to use websites for creativity, for like, you know, ex- artistic expression, for sort of new ways to like provide content. That's interesting. And I'm not looking at this sort of like, a, oh, how can we acquire developers uh, to NeoCities or whatever, right? I just sort of consider that like its own world. And we focus on the creatives. And I think because we focused on the creatives of the web and not the developers of the web, I think that's been the major reason why uh, NeoCities has been so successful. Yeah. Cool. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to mention or, or think we should have talked about? Uh, well, we haven't talked about the GeoCities restoration project I've been doing. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so can you can you go a little bit into to, to your work on that and sort of why you feel like that's important? Yeah, something I've always been interested in is just sort of the original uh, GeoCities archive and uh, making it so that people can kind of uh, see the the history of the web and be able to sort of like understand it and, and just kind of surf through it because there's, you know, there was millions, of, there was like six or seven million sites on GeoCities that are gone, but the, the information they provided was still kind of interesting. You know, like the... The, the web pages are kind of neat, cool looking. They're they're kind of artistic and creative and weird. Um, sometimes by accident, they just sort of you know goofy. But right. um, you know they were still cool, and I've always like found it really interesting to kind of go through them and look at them and just sort of explore them and see what's there. Um, it's like you're a hiker, right? And you're just sort of hiking through this like weird part of the wood, like mountains that no one's ever been through before or walking and you're walking and all of a sudden you discover this just sort of massive set of just crazy ruins. Like they're like, I don't know, like Roman style, like, you know, ruins or something like that, you know, and you just kind of walk through mm-hmm. it and you're just like, look at all these, like, there's all this cool stuff and you're just kind of like walking through and looking at it. And you're like, this is amazing. Like, this was all really, what is this? Right? Like, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of the vibe I've always gotten when I look at the, the GeoCities stuff. And so what I said to myself last year was, Hey, you know, I, I want to spend some time restoring it. Like I want to restore it to, to sort of a surf surfable condition is what I've been describing it as like, uh, so that it's easy to kind of look at a lot of the sites and kind of like go through them. And a lot of this has just been taking stuff I learned from NeoCities, like having a visual gallery of the websites, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. And sort of making a visual gallery of the original GeoCity sites too. So that you can, it's like easy to kind of visually look at them before you go there. Cause you know, being able to see them visually gives you cues as to like, oh, this could be an interesting site. The other really interesting thing that happened as part of this whole process was that uh, there's this amazing developer down in uh, the Bay Area. Uh, he goes by Feroz on Twitter. And um, he ported a MIDI synthesizer to web browsers uh, uh, using a, a WebAssembly. Uh, mm-hmm. and he made it so that he actually made this awesome web portal called bitmidi.com. It's, it's, it's a website where you can actually listen to, to MIDI files and there's like millions and millions of MIDI files there. Uh, I actually, I actually, uh, exported all the MIDI files out of, uh, GeoCities and gave him a copy of it when I was hanging out with him the uh, summer, uh, just so he could like add yeah. it to the database if he wanted to. So now when you go to the, uh, GeoCities sites in our archive that we're about to launch, uh, we're going to probably launch it in the next couple of weeks here. Uh, it actually plays the MIDI files on the sites again. So when you load like oh, the old nice. GeoCities sites, it will play the music. You have to click on the sites before they'll start playing. Um, mm-hmm. because, uh, Google doesn't let sites autoplay anymore. Uh, okay. or like, sorry, Chrome doesn't, uh, because okay. you know, news sites were like starting to autoplay videos and were driving everyone crazy. Right. So they, right. they got rid of that. So I haven't quite figured out the best way to do that interface yet so that people know that they can start playing a, music or whatever. Mm-hmm. I might just put like a, I might actually like just inject like a weird, uh, audio like looking like thing on the top right or something. I don't know. Figure mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. But when it's launched, it'll basically just be a giant museum of all of the, GeoCity sites. We're not building this for people that have like old computers running like Netscape 4. This is for new web browsers so that anyone that has a web browser now can actually load the HTML of these sites uh, that were in the GeoCities archive that were GeoCity sites before it shut down. And lo and yeah. behold, most of these sites still load. 
they, they hmm. still work. Like they still render that, you know, the, the, the size of the page might be incorrect or something, right? There might be some like, mm-hmm. you know, UI like glitch that makes it so it doesn't look as cool as it used to or whatever. But for the most part, yeah. all the sites work. And that's something that's, I, I will say is also like a really cool thing about the web is that it's, you know, about HTML specifically is that, you know, it tends to age really gracefully, right? Like sites that are 30 years old still work in new browsers. And, you know, how many other languages, platforms can you say that about, you know? Like when you make an HTML page, you know, 30 years later, it still loads, it still works. Yeah, and that's pretty incredible. And so that staying power of HTML to me is one of the more interesting things about it when you make a site on NeoCities or on when you made a site on GeoCities or when you made the first website ever with Tim Berners-Lee on this like a test computer, 30 years from now, every site that's on NeoCities will probably still work in whatever web browser they're using at the time. And that's, mm-hmm. that's amazing. You know, like that's, yeah, that's cool. Like, yeah. That's like in direct contrast to iOS apps made now where a lot of apps as the operating system gets upgraded, there's old apps that just no longer work at all. Oh, yeah. And the only way to get them to work is for the original developers to go in and change code. But they're, you know, they're long gone. They've they've moved on. And so it's pretty amazing that with the web, like something that somebody made in the 90s, you can still open it up 20 years later and have it all, all work. Oh, yeah. I was actually, I, I saw a, there's a viral tweet this morning of a guy that's chastising another guy because he built a Hackintosh. Uh, a Hackintosh is like a, it's a Macintosh. It's like, it's a PC, but it's like runs Mac OS. Like there's hacks where you can actually mm-hmm. like run Mac OS on a, a PC instead of like a, you know, Apple's hardware or whatever. Mm-hmm. And one of the big problems, I guess, that Hackintosh people have is that if Apple upgrades like to a new operating system and it won't work with the Hackintosh anymore, it, it can make it so that if you're an iOS developer, you can't, publish your your software because sometimes they make it so that you have to upgrade xcode otherwise you can't like publish to like ios anymore the the software in that space is so brittle that it doesn't even last a, a single development cycle sometimes software just tends to erode very quickly um but html doesn't you know html has this sort of magic staying power and it's my hope that it continues to have that magic staying power um, in well into the future. And I think the way that you improve that is that you make it so it's easier for people to just make static HTML documents and not have to sort of depend on all this sort of backend goop, uh, and, uh, very complicated JavaScript stuff even, uh, in order to, for it to work. I, I wish web browsers, people would be a little more focused on like, okay, how can we just make life better for people just making static HTML? But yeah, in mm-hmm. terms of uh, the the archive stuff, um, we've launched a new project called Restorative Land, uh, which is just sort of the the base plate for a series of archive restoration projects that we're planning to do in 2020. One of them is the Restore of the GeoCities Archive, which is like the first obvious one to do. There are some GeoCities archives out there, but they haven't been updated in like 10 years. They're kind of falling apart and they've got a lot of problems and they're not very accessible. You know, we're also working on uh, some other uh, web properties that are going to get restored. AOL had web pages. I don't know how many people know that, (laughs) you know. I did not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) AOL users had their own web uh, hosting space 
too. And uh, huh. the Internet Archive has backed a lot of that up. So a lot of that information is is there. You know, mm. a lot of the stuff that we're going to build for restoring the Geocities pages is also stuff mm-hmm. that we're going to be able to use on, you know, other properties like AOL and also Netscape had a web hosting service for a while. Uh, there was a bunch of them mm. and they're all fundamentally the same kind of HTML because they're designed to work for the browsers of their period. And so anything we use to like clean up and fix up uh, GeoCities pages can also be used on these other portals too. And so we're going to just sort of provide all of these as like a weird museum of like historical websites. That's, that's, uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of work on that in 2020. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, there's gonna be a lot of interesting new web platforms to surf. So uh, look forward to that. Yeah, I think that's super exciting because, you know, I remember like there were all sorts of different GeoCities pages and sort of being able to curate or create this environment where people can kind of discover, um, they can look up specific topics or be able to see like what were people thinking in that time, Um, you know, having a user-friendly way of kind of diving through that. That sounds like, that sounds super fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the interesting things about GeoCities, which, you know, at the time, you know, I thought that it was stupid, but um, the neighborhoods, so like when you had GeoCity sites, they had neighborhoods, uh, which were sort of these like subsections of GeoCity sites that were sort of vaguely uh, related to the content of the sites themselves. So for example, there Mm -hmm. was Area 51. And Area 51 was like, conspiracy stuff, aliens, like any kind of cyberpunk kind of stuff. But then there was like Tokyo, which was like Asian culture stuff, but then also involved a lot of anime and stuff like that. There was, uh, I think it was called Petsburg, which was just like web pages for people's pets. There was uh, West Hollywood, which was uh, the LGBT community of GeoCities. Uh, in fact, uh, mm-hmm. David Bonet, the founder of GeoCities, was gay. And in interview he did later on i don't remember uh who did the interview but it was very illuminating he said that one of the big reasons he started geocities was because he wanted to create a platform for the lgbt community to be able to express themselves and communicate with each other and so uh Hmm. david was a i i think internally probably a very strong defender of the the sort of lgbt community on geocities uh and, and in the west hollywood section which you know could tend to get a little racy, uh, particularly for like the sort of sort of standards of the 90s. You know, there's some there's some stuff on there that's like, you know, pretty, uh, pretty adult, not safe for work, all, uh, even to this day. And and, and there was also because uh, like a lot of these neighborhoods were named after like weird parts of L.A. I've never been to. One of the uh, neighborhoods is called Rodeo Drive, I think. And now you, you're from you're, if you're from you're from you're from the area. So you might know this, but. Uh, I thought Rodeo Drive until like, you know, four months ago was like, I, I thought it meant like cowboys or like, you know, like, you know, like, I don't know, like cattle, oh, cattle uh-huh. rustling or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Cause like I, but, but like, and when in fact Rodeo Drive is, I guess this like really fancy luxury shopping mall district in LA or something. Yeah. It's Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Right. And I had no idea cause I, <laughs> you know, I'd never <laughs> been to Beverly Hills. The, the fanciest place I ever buy stuff is like REI. You know, mm-hmm. like, like that's my <laughs> which can get pretty. Pricey, yeah, oh, yeah. To be fair. <laughs> yeah. That's like that's my idea of luxury shopping. You know, like I'm yeah, not yeah. really into like Gucci handbags or whatever, you know. Right, like, right, right. <laughs> so, right. But some but some smart wool, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, oh and that's just survival tactics there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> now, I grew up in Minnesota. The first thing they do is teach you how to like not die in cold weather. So, yeah, 
all about it's a good skill yeah 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 <laughs> but um the cool thing about those neighborhoods is that they've really helped to sort of separate the interests of the sites it gives you a way to kind of fine-tune the sort of stuff that you're looking at and that's actually been very helpful uh for trying trying to provide a visual gallery of these sites because you know with geocities you can be like yeah tokyo's the weird anime section uh, and like japanese culture and stuff but then if you if i ever make a museum for like i don't know let's say angel fire right because like i mean are, mm-hmm. are they going to be a site in 10 years they're you know they're are, are they still around? they are still around yeah they are still around oh i did um, not know that the internet, uh, they have a uh i don't know if the internet archive's done this yet but one of the neat things about uh, Angel Fire is that their robots file uh, provides a sitemap for all the sites on Angel Fire. And so it's actually pretty easy to archive Angel Fire because they, they just give you a list of all the sites on, on, on Angel Fire, which is pretty awesome. I actually, hmm. um, actually did that with Neocities recently after looking at it. I was just like, oh, yeah, I should make a sitemap file. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, um, but when I if I ever provided a museum of like uh, of Angel Fire sites, it would just be like, a hundred million just sites are just alphabetized from A to Z uh, with the username, right? Because there's no neighborhoods, mm-hmm. it's just usernames. And so like right. uh, that categorization used to be a lot, you know, more important back in the 90s, like when you had things like Yahoo, which didn't, you know, was a search engine of sorts, but it was sort of like a categorized curated search engine. So there'd be like uh, mm-hmm. subsections of Yahoo that were like, you know, anime and then the subsection of that would be like sailor moon right and then there'd be a bunch of sailor moon Mm -hmm. sites uh the they don't do that anymore right and um so i don't know how i'm gonna arrange like angel fire or netscape sites or whatever right because like what's the best way to provide that content without having that sort of like way of fine-tuning the sort of nature of that content a little bit um i haven't figured it out yet to be honest with you like i I, there might be some programmatic way to be like, oh, yeah, like this is the these are the most important like these are, you know, to like separate out sites based on like, you know, search terms or something like that. Right. Like yeah. like look for the word anime and then be like, oh, yeah, if it has anime in it, it's probably an anime site or something. Mm-hmm. Right. But I haven't yeah. quite figured out the best way to do that categorization yet. So the GeoCity stuff's kind of easy in that sense, because I kind of got that for free. But when I start looking at these other data sets, uh, it's going to be a challenge to kind of figure out how to like make the surfing of this like an interesting experience. And like, that's um, that's the problem that like we're going to be running into a lot of once GeoCities is done. Yeah. That sounds like that's going to be uh, yeah an interesting concept to tackle. I mean, uh, if you think about it, that's kind of the same problem that someone like, say, Google or Twitch or whatever, all these kind of groups have in terms of they have so much content, but um, they have to have some way of driving people to the content that might be interested, interesting to them. And you're sort of kind of dealing with the same problem, but with even less metadata, right? There's no tags and no uh, topics, things like that. Yeah, there's a certain truth to this, too, that... A lot of the reason why a lot of these platforms have failed uh, or, or a lot of these like mediums have failed is, is simply because they didn't do a good job of aggregating this content in a way that was actually useful to people, uh, that was actually mm-hmm. interesting. So, for example, uh, one of the things that I did, there was a big terabyte or a dump of like a bunch of MySpace music recently. Um, it was just a big pile of random f- files that like were named weird. And 
I made a Pandora like music player for it that would just like play random files from that, but it was like in a continuous mm. way, like similar to like when you mm. like start a radio station on Pandora, or I guess like I'm maybe people don't use Pandora anymore. Uh, Spotify radio, or you know, so any kind of like a radio station, yeah, you know, yeah. you type in, I'm into, I don't know, like Sonic Youth, and it just like plays like you know music related to sonic youth of which there is almost none so maybe try a different <laughs> but you know it's just like you get like all the three or four like bands from like grunge era like new york mm-hmm. where they just like you know record five minutes of an amplifier overloading or something like that but um but yeah it was if myspace music had decided to do that and was like hey Let's make MySpace Radio with we have like hundreds, like millions and millions of these like awesome bands making this really cool like music that's like, you know, independent and no one's ever discovered it before. If they had made like a radio service for that or some kind of way to get people to kind of start listening to it more actively, then, you know, maybe maybe they wouldn't have like completely failed like they did. Right. Um, Yeah. Maybe if. Maybe if Yahoo had done a better job of like curating and providing like a list of the sites uh, that were available, maybe Yahoo would still be around, right? It was just, um, you know, typing in stuff you're looking for into a text box is not the only way that people want to or should discover content, right? Sometimes they don't know what they're looking for. And this mm-hmm. to me is the really critical lesson and mistake that everyone in the tech industry makes. It's that it's not just about what the person wants. It's about understanding what they might find. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think that's a skill that's really lost right now. And that, you know, more people need to understand is that, um, you know, sometimes you're looking for something, right? I'm trying to find a recipe for, mm-hmm. I don't know, like uh, vegan uh, uh, hippie bowls or something. Some, But like sometimes you don't know what you're looking for. You're like, I, I'll, what yeah. do I want for dinner, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, and you just want to get a list of just stuff, you know, that you, just, you know, that's why, why QuickBooks exists, right? It's not, it, it's just, so you can open it up and kind of like look and be like, oh, just look at the pictures and be like, oh, that sounds, that, that's interesting. Maybe I'll try that, right? Um and, and, you know, so the web needs to be better at that, at providing ways for people to explore, uh, to surf, uh, to discover new things. And I think that's something that's like, you know, where the, a lot of these companies fall apart and have failed. It's just that, you know, they've had this content that, that was on their platform, but then they've provided terrible, terrible, um, they've, they've just not provided good ways to actually explore that content. And, and yeah, you know. it's kind of the discoverability. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you think about it, um, sites like YouTube or Twitch or Instagram or even like TikTok, right? They're what kind of makes them sort of so appealing to people is that they go to the page and they immediately start getting. Um, suggestions or a list of things that like, hey, this is something we think you'd like to look at. Um, and I, I think you're right in that the the web just for regular web pages doesn't really have that same kind of, um, I guess, homepage or, or, or dashboard or whatever. Yeah. And even, you know, the algorithms of companies that are supposed to be good at this are 
can be pretty bad at a lot of this stuff, you know, like one of the weird mm-hmm. problems I have actually. Uh, so like my my YouTube, just to give you like a background on this, like I, the things I use YouTube for are like trying to figure out how to like put tire chains on my car if i'm going like right snow zone like so again from yeah like actually did this yesterday uh because i was uh i went up skiing yesterday and you know the mountains are here are just like ice sheets of ice whenever there's like a snow event and uh i'm from minnesota and you know you think oh you use tire chains all the time well they're actually banned in minnesota because they tear up the roads uh and so mm-hmm. um you're just sort of expected to drive correctly in that weather uh, which is just to be s- slow down it's really all mm-hmm. but um so i'd never actually put chains on my tires and so you know youtube's a great way to like figure out how to do things like that like install chains on your tires for sure uh, yeah. so i do a lot of stuff like that like how to's and how to do things um I, I watch a lot of like weird skiing documentaries sometimes like and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like stuff like, you know, there's like a lot of these weird Japanese city pop stations, which is just like city pops mm-hmm. is like 80s weird like pop music from Japan. It's really just J-pop that's been like rebranded so that people like don't like are embarrassed to admit that they like listen to J-pop or something like that. But then like, I don't know, YouTube's like suggestions system gets like sick it's like mine mine always just it gets sick it starts to get dark it starts to it starts to recommend uh, like like weird like racist like alt-right people and like uh, and yeah, all this yeah. crazy like global warming is a hoax videos and stuff mm-hmm, and i'm just like mm-hmm. what did what did i do i'm i'm not looking at any of the stuff I and mean, why yeah, why are you recommending yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm watching skiing documentaries and listening to japanese pop music like what is mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. is going on and then i always have to like nuke sure. my history settings to just like kill the disease so it stops like recommending all yeah, these like nasty yeah. videos and stuff and it's just like right and and you know even with neo cities with site recommendation stuff I've never been able to make an algorithm that's any better than just users saying that they like sites. So like, mm-hmm. so like the best display of Neocity sites is just the one that has the most followers at this point, because which is yeah. kind of weird because it like doesn't really, it makes it harder for like new sites to emerge, but I, I, right. I haven't found an algorithm that's like actually better at it than just doing that. So it's just, yeah. Um, so yeah, these, you know, just, Beware when, and I hope that's, you know, if anything, like restoring a bunch of cool old sites and making them really visually accessible is, is the priority of like this project, the restorative land project. Um, But I think, you know, actually restoring the sites is the least interesting thing to me. It's the thing that where we're going to learn the least lessons. Uh, The thing where we're going to learn the most lessons is, is in how we discover new ways to provide discovery of content that you're not necessarily looking for. Like that to me is the real interesting thing that's going to come out of this project. And there could be implications for, uh, you know, major, you know, social networks and service providers and, you know, YouTube and stuff like that because they suck at it, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of surprising, but I feel like when you look at things like Reddit, for example, or Hacker News or things like that, it's basically just a leaderboard. Yeah. Right. And um, I love Hacker News, by the way. It's like my favorite site. Yeah, I, I do as well. Um, and it's so interesting that over, you know, it's been over 20 years and it seems like the best we can get is having people just upvote stuff. And, and I guess they do have a moderation team. So that's actually pretty important too. 
Um, oh, yeah. But it seems like so far, that's the best solution we have is uh, humans, you know, doing the moderation uh, and having people just upvote the stuff that they're interested oh, in. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. At Hacker News specifically, uh, Dan G is the the moderator that does a lot of like cleaning up whatever the algorithm doesn't catch um, and mm -hmm. does a really good job at it, you know, and it's not it's not an algorithm. Mm -hmm. It's not a secret algorithm. It's like a human being. It's a thoughtful human being that's like actually thinking right. about what the site should have on it and what it shouldn't have um yeah it'll be interesting to see if you know when you work with the data set like geocities or something like that can you find a better solution is that something that you're gonna open up to other people to see um if other people can try and tackle it or, or what's your approach uh, all of the all of the work, uh, code that we're going to write to restore the data or to do anything with it uh, all of that is going to be open source. Like we are going to publish all of it uh, in our GitHub repository. Uh, I, I just made a restorative land GitHub repo. There's nothing in it yet because uh, I'm just doing it on my personal GitHub right now. But um, all of the code that we're going to do for that is is going to be open source. And so anything that we sort of learn, any kind of interesting ways to like m go through that data um, will be uh, published and freely accessible to anyone that wants to do whatever they want with it. Um, you know, there's no reason to make that closed source. You know, there's just, I, I'd rather have people like help improve the, the, the restoration stuff and, you know, work with, together with people on it than, you know, keep it a secret or anything. So cool. Yeah. That's, um, that's really exciting. So, um, you know, to kind of wrap up where, where should people look to kind of see when restorative land's going to be, you know, operational and kind of, you know, follow what you're doing and, and things like that. Well, there's uh there's restorativeland.org, which, you know, it, it, in a, in a humorous way is just sort of links to other social networks and stuff, any kind of updates or anything like that, that I'll be doing, I'll be putting on that, that site. Or, or we also have a Twitter account, restorative land. And yeah, when I do releases announcements and stuff, uh, it's, I'm going to be doing it on that. And uh, hopefully we'll get the, the first release of the geocities gallery out the door soon. Uh, that's uh, kind of the last thing I'm working on. I'm just sort of working cleaning up the interface a little bit before we launch it, but that's the plan. Very cool. And for people who are interested in checking out NeoCities, where where should they head? Uh, NeoCities.org. Cool. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You can get show notes and the transcript for this episode at softwaresessions.com. And if you had a GeoCity site, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Our theme music is by Crystal Cola. We will see you next time.